Thank you for listening to the Christ Church Showmans. This is Jared Sparks, one of the pastors at Christ Church Carbondale. We want to thank you so much for listening, as Ransom said, my son. And we ultimately hope that these are God-honoring. And because they are God-honoring, we hope that they are also edifying and encouraging and, and challenging to you in the best sort of way. Thanks so much for listening. This morning is to live as Christ, death is gain. Life and death, it's all about Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, we need your wisdom. We need direction. Thank you that we have in your word. You're very, it's just, I said it, it's in your word. Your words are here. We thank you that you have spoken. You're always speaking. We come to hear your voice this morning. We come to respond to you. So help us open our spiritual ears. There's so many things we hear in life that go in one ear and out the other. They crash into our brain, but they're not pulled down into our heart. And then there's moments that we have in life. It feels like a light bulb goes off. And it's like, I've heard that so many times but I've never actually heard it. And I pray this morning that you would connect some dots like that. I pray that you would have words, your word, go into our ears, our spiritual ears, and you would just yank those down, yank that truth down into our heart this morning. And I pray that we'd be encouraged. God, I pray that we would receive joy this morning. I pray that we would receive encouragement. God, lead us in all that we do. I'm thankful that you have spoken. Help me to be faithful to your word. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. All right, uh, 50 years ago, I've been thinking through a lot about emotions and emotional life. And if you are of the baby boomer generation, most likely you had a father, most likely, not every father from that era, but that greatest generation of men, they knew how to work hard, but those men and women went through World War I, they went through the Great Depression. They experienced World War II. They had a lot in their life that really challenged their emotional life. And a lot of the men that went to war, they saw buddies get blown up right beside them. They, they saw things that nobody should see in life that were very, very hard and difficult to, to go through. And so because of that, a lot of those men really suppressed and really pushed down and really just didn't know how to express emotions. So when we think about our grandparents or great-grandparents, there's stories that many of our dad and moms have that, that go like this. So when my dad worked hard and we, we had money, we had food on the table, but I was never told that he loved me. He never told me that he was proud of me. They've experienced just hardworking men that didn't know how to express their emotion. Now, contrast that with where we are today, and we, we still don't know how to express our emotions today. Emotions are everywhere in our world right now. They're, they're worn on the sleeve. We call it being authentic or being real. And we see emotions just everywhere. When President Trump won in 2016, you saw people crying in the streets. And now uh, you, you see emotions all over the place with politics. But you see it with sports teams. You see people weeping. I remember in 1996 when the Chicago Bulls beat the Phoenix Suns, bawling my eyes out because Kevin Johnson and Charles Barkley didn't win the NBA championship. I mean, just bawling. Kevin Johnson was my favorite basketball player. Just couldn't handle it. Uh, we live in a day now where the, the, everybody has their emotions and they're put up front and center and we live by our emotions. We make our decisions by our emotions. We just don't know how to process them rightly. And yet the Bible has a full range of lament and rejoice. They're all over the place. We, we're told to grieve with those who grieve and rejoice with those who rejoice. That our emotions are things given to us by God. It's a part of what it means to be in, uh, in this thing called mankind. But the Bible gives us direction on how to handle those things, how to process those things. And, and so I think there's a real danger, a real danger of this thing called authenticity. 
A real danger of fake authenticity, I should say, to be more specific. It is quite popular in our day to say things like this. You just got to be real, man. You just got to be authentic. Or you just got to wear whatever you're thinking, just wear it on your sleeve. Let everybody know about it. You got to be real. And I think that there is a danger, I think, um, in, in being overly authentic in such a way where it becomes forced or unauthentic. If, it's, if, authentic, if authenticity is demanded, well, then by definition, it's not actually real. And as a society, I think we've been trained to feel and express whatever our circumstances are in our life. So whatever you're walking through, we should, based on what society expects of us, we should model whatever our circumstances are in our emotional life. So if we're going through something great, you're really happy. If you're going through something terrible, you should, it should be real, be authentic, and wear that lament on your sleeve. We're told that's what authentic, authenticity looks like. You just got to be real, man. Um, so if things are tough, we don't want to be fake. We want to wear our emotions there where they're supposed to be, front and center. We, we, we have to be authentic. Um, but the problem is the Bible gives, gives regulations and it gives proper outlets for all of these things. Um, emotions are biblical, but um, unrestrained or un, uninformed emotions are not biblical. And to live your life based on your circumstances is not biblical either. So whatever's going on around you, just matching whatever's going on around you with the way you're living your life, that's not biblical. And we have this example in Paul. Uh, we see that Paul has peace and joy in the midst of apparent chaos, and that is available to us. That is available to every single believer in Christ. Peace and joy through apparent chaos, Amen. where we don't have to match our life with our circumstances. We can actually have peace and joy, and the circumstances are not offering that. But God is. Look at verse 18b in Philippians chapter 1. After just rejoicing that brothers who are preaching out of envy and rivalry, if they're preaching the real Christ, Paul is saying, even if they don't like me, I'm going to rejoice in the fact that Christ is being preached. And in that same spirit of rejoicing, he continues on in verse 18b and says, Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. Paul continues to rejoice. Now, he just rejoiced about Jesus being preached, and he's continuing on. And I think it's important for us to make a real distinction, and we've talked a little bit about this before, about a year and a half ago, but I think it's important to talk about it again. Uh, I want to break down or shatter this notion that the scriptures somehow tell us that there's a difference between happiness and joy. And this is going to be crucial. You're going to hear why here in a second. Um, Happiness and joy, you've, you've heard it and you've probably said this, I've said this before, but you've, you've heard it said that happiness and joy are not the same thing, okay? So the idea is that happiness is about temporary pleasure, like a temporary, you go on a roller coaster, you really enjoy the roller coaster, or you really hate the roller coaster, um, and you have joy, I mean, excuse me, you have happiness, but the idea or the concept is that's just temporary but what we're really after is joy, this abiding, abiding joy. And although that can preach, that can come across well in an article, that's just not biblical. There, there's not the distinctions like that in the scripture. There are things like temporary pleasure that Solomon warns against. You don't like, you know, Solomon in, his, in the book of Ecclesiastes is warning, warning against temporary pleasure, which people in the world in that sort of framework would say, see, that's a warning against just pursuing happiness. But that's not how the Bible portrays happiness at all. 
Like if you just look in the scriptures, joy and happiness, they're, they're intertwined. They're, they're the same thing here. So we, we've built this false dichotomy that a Christian can be uh, grieving and sad and say, but yet I have the joy of the Lord. And there is an extent to which that's true, like if somebody in your family dies, if you have somebody, just a real grief that you're going through, you can't have the joy of the Lord in that. But what Paul is getting at here is actually joy, like actually feeling it. You're feeling like happy from the inside out, you're actually joyful. You're not actually dreary and sad and bummed out, but, but I have the joy of the Lord. What Paul is getting at here is, no, in the midst of prison, I am rejoicing. I am happy. I'm not happy that I'm in prison, but I'm actually happy. And if we don't understand that that, that distinction is a false distinction, we'll get this, we'll, we can easily adopt this mindset that's like, okay, the joy of the Lord actually doesn't mean anything practically in my life. I just have it, but it doesn't actually make me joyful. I can be dreary and sad and bummed out and depressed all the time and claim that I have the joy of the Lord. That's not the joy of the Lord. The joy of the Lord is expressive. It comes out. It helps you in, when you're in prison. It helps you when you're going through difficulty to actually be happy. And so when I'm using happiness and joy today, I'm using them as synonyms. And I'm not saying just temporary pleasure, just temporary you know, happy feelings. Happiness and joy, real happiness from the inside out coming out. In fact, this is a theme that Paul connects regularly to the church. That in the midst of affliction and suffering, we should be joyful. Not happy that I'm getting beat, or happy that I'm getting shackled, but happy in the Lord in the midst of being shackled. To where the people shackling you are like, what in the world, why are you singing right now? Why are you not just down in the dumps, bummed out right now? And the answer that the Christians would respond with, it, I, have the, I have Christ, the joy of the Lord. In fact, okay, Paul presupposes this in several instances. Consider this. Philippians chapter 4, verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. 1 Thessalonians 1, 6. You became Im imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. Much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. Now that's, uh, that's not talking, of, that, that's saying that they actually had joy. Like it was, they actually were experiencing joy in the midst of this affliction. It wasn't that they were sad and feeling afflicted and bummed out, but then, you know, just said, but I got the joy of the Lord. They actually had the joy of the Lord. 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Rejoice always. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 8, Apostle Peter says this, Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that's inexpressible and filled with glory. Now the book of 1 Peter was written to the dispersed church, so they, they were under persecution, fleeing persecution. And yet the Apostle Peter anticipates that they have inexpressible joy and that they are filled with glory. This is practical and it's real. In the midst of affliction, joy is available. Happiness is available. And I'm seeing those as synonyms. But we have to ask, what is Paul rejoicing in? Verse 19, I just read it, I'll read it again. 
For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Christ Jesus, this will turn out for my deliverance. Paul is rejoicing because he knows that through the intercessory prayer of this church, anytime that a church was praying for the apostle or the apostle was praying for a church, that's called intercessory prayer. When you're praying for the needs of somebody else, we still practice this today regularly as we pray for James Perry's brother. How's your brother, by the way? Praise God. It's awesome. Um, as we pray for one another and family members, this is intercessory prayer. We're, we're coming and pleading, praying to God on behalf of other people. So they were intercessing for Paul, and he thinks, he's confident in the fact that through their prayers, he is going to be delivered. It's going to happen through the prayers of the church and with the help of the Spirit of Christ. Paul's confident that he's going to get out of there. So he re he's rejoicing. But it's going to be interesting as we look at this. Like, like, what does he mean by get out of there? Delivered. Okay? So look at verse 20. What kind of deliverance? This is going to turn out for my deliverance, as it will be my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. By life or by death. Christ would be honored in his body. So we got to get, it's just, it's just powerful. Uh, the Apostle Paul was not superhuman. He was a Christian with the Holy Spirit. He made mistakes, he made sins. Sometimes we can think about the Apostle Paul or any of the, the apostles and think like, you know, that, that is like, that's not available to me. Th these sorts of things, they're available. They're for us. He wasn't a superhero that you know, never made mistakes, never sinned. He, he tells us about indwelling sin. But I want us to see the dreary situation he was in and, and what is his hope? Like, what's his joy? What's he rejoicing in? Some sort of deliverance that's going to happen for him. It's coming his way. So his eager hope is that in this deliverance, whatever this deliverance is, that in this deliverance he would not at all be ashamed, but he would have full courage and that Christ would be honored in his body by life or death. So Paul's deliverance that he's rejoicing in is either going to come by life or death. And he's confident it's coming. It's not just that Paul's rejoicing that he's going to escape prison. He's already escaped before. God miraculously had delivered him before. Shook the prison walls by earthquake. Marched him right out of there. It's not that he's just thinking about that and rejoicing in the fact that I know I'm going to march out of this prison again. He's saying, my deliverance is coming and I'm confident in it. God, give me courage to face my deliverance, whether it's by life or death. So either Paul's going to get busted out, walk free and continue on in his ministry and maybe get to Rome, or excuse me, maybe get to Spain, or he's going to die in that prison cell. And he's rejoicing in the fact that either way, that's deliverance. We, we have this idea, I think, at times that um, for God to come through for me, it's, it's got to be the way I want it to be. Uh, if we were in prison, we would be praying to be out of prison, and hopefully others would be praying for us to get out of prison as well. We, want, we wouldn't want to be there. It's not the best place in the world to be. Um, but Paul's his confidence and his hope wasn't in, rooted in just getting out. He was confident that he was going to be delivered by life or by death. And it did not matter to him which way. He just wanted to not be ashamed 
He wanted to have full courage to, to see that Christ was honored in his body. Um, Paul wanted to honor Christ through bodily, bodily freedom, through escaping or through death. And so he just wanted to not be unashamed. He wanted to be a courageous no matter what. Now, to me, it's helpful to think through the Apostle Paul um, being hopeful that he would be courageous. Because in his mind, it wasn't a done deal. He was thankful that prayers were coming his way because he knew in moments of weakness he may not be courageous. Uh, he knew his own frailty. He knew his own weakness. He regularly talked about it. He knew his own indwelling sin and his battles with the flesh. And he's thankful and rejoicing that this church would come alongside and pray that he would be full of courage. That he would be delivered, whether, whether by life or by death. Uh, you see the humanity of Paul, the brotherhood of Paul. He's a man just like me, just like you. Paul was more concerned about him being unashamed and courageous and that Christ would be honored in his body than he was about the mode of deliverance. So the circumstances around him, prison, the possibility of death, were not determining his countenance. It wasn't determining. He was rejoicing in the fact and praying that God would give him the courage that he needed to see God glorified in his life or death. Look at verse 21. The, the story develops. For me to live as Christ and to die is gain. To live as Christ and to die is gain. Now, I think it was Jordan that mentioned this a while back. It's either Jordan or Ryan Deaton. I'm always talking to them about different things. I, I know they're vastly different, but... Um, to live is Christ. Was that you, honey, was asking that? Was that you, Ryan? To live is Christ. <laughs> the phrase is very interesting. To live is Christ. And to die is gain. For to me, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Um, he says something similar to this in Colossians chapter 3, 4. He says, when Christ, who is your life, appears, when Christ who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Uh, it would be, you would think, a little bit easier for Paul to say, uh, for me to live is all about Christ, rather than just say, for me to live is Christ. Um, but you have to see Paul and understand that he sees his life and the life of Christ intertwined. Amen. That he, he can't even view his life what he does today, tomorrow, next week, in any way whatsoever disconnected from Christ. His, very, his life is Christ. And death would be gained because he would be with Christ. Uh, when Christ, who is your life, appears. Colossians chapter 3, verse 4. Paul sees his life so intricately woven with the very life of Christ, and he expects, according to Colossians 3, verse 4, that we also would see our life so intricately woven in with Christ that we, can't, we, we just can't even imagine our life without it being about the life of Christ. This is not a dual identity thing here where we've got some pockets of our life that we keep to ourselves. This is all of Christ for all of life. You know, people used to say in the 90s, you know, tw that 24-7, 365, you know, like people used to talk about, you know, 24-7, whatever. I mean, the life of a believer, 24-7, three, 
164 or 5, depending on leap year, whatever, uh, days a year, uh, all of Christ for all of life. There isn't an option here that we have pockets of our life that don't belong to him. And for Paul, his very life was connected with the very life of Christ. There was not one aspect of his life that was not for Christ. Every part of his being, he viewed as the very life of Christ being lived through him. There's no hidden pockets. There's no pockets of sin. There's no closed doors that he doesn't willingly open and say, Christ, have all of me. Change me. Any area of sin that the Holy Spirit would highlight, that he would hold on to himself, for himself, it was a settled issue for him. If I'm alive, my life is about Christ. We think about the way we parent, the way we work, the way we go to school, the way we dress, the way we conduct ourselves as men or as women. All of our life belongs to him. He owns all of us, not just part of us. When he purchased you on the cross, he didn't purchase your Sundays. He didn't purchase your devotional life Monday morning, Tuesday morning, Wednesday morning. He purchased every single breath that you would ever breathe. Every single step that you would take. Even our steps into sin or even our backsliding, he would own that as well and be punished for it. And so, friends, when we consider our life, we consider our work, it's not our life and it's not our work. It's Christ living through us. And this, for Paul, was so crucial. If he's in prison, his life in prison is about Christ. If he's walking out of there in freedom, his life walking out of there in freedom, it's about Christ. Friends, it's a done issue for every single Christian. Our life mission is about the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not an optional thing for a believer. That's why nominal Christianity in 2020 is going to die. You're not getting any brownie points in 2020 for being a Christian. You're not getting a bump in social status for saying you believe in the Christian sexual ethic. You're not, you're not uh, getting a pat on the back from the world for saying, I believe what God has to say. That's just it. Sorry, it's a settled issue. It's a done issue. I get my marching orders for him. I'm not going to live my life. I'm going to live the life he calls me to live. Nominal Christianity, lukewarmness, there's no place for that. Christ is our life. To live is Christ, death is gain. Let's think about death being gain. What does that mean, that death would be gain? Um, sometimes we forget that the Apostle Paul didn't just spend all of his time in prison. Uh, there was a time when Paul lived a life of prominence. He lived a life of prominence. He was a Pharisee, describes himself a Pharisee of all Pharisees, trained in the steps of Gamaliel, Gamaliel the, the legendary, the well-known leader in the Sanhedrin and teacher of Pharisees. He learned from Gamaliel himself. Paul was celebrated for his scholarship. He was well-known for being a good Pharisee, zealous for the Lord. What comes with those kind of uh, credentials, is, is, it's just accolades, it's public recognition. Paul knew what it meant to have plenty. And even after he became a Christian, he knew at times what it meant to have plenty. He didn't just live a life constantly on the run, only being bit, beaten. We talked a little bit about that last week. He says in Philippians chapter 4.12, we'll get to this here in a few months, Paul says, I know how to be brought low. 
I mean, he's in prison. He knows how to be brought low. He needs, knows how to rejoice through that. And I know how to abound. It takes growth to know how to be brought low and to abound. You can abound and have a lot in a very wrong way. But he knew how to do both and knew how to do both well. In any and every circumstance, Paul says, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger. I love that he says facing plenty because there's hidden dangers with facing plenty. And I know, I know how to face that. I know to walk into that. I know how to walk into abundance and plenty. And I know how to walk into hunger and starvation even. Feeling my belly rumble. I know the secret of having contentment in both. And so Paul experienced highs and lows. Like the social status, the latter. He'd been up there. He'd been down there. He's been in between. He knew how to face it all. He'd been there, done that. And so he says, death is gain as a man who's experienced a lot of joy, a lot of happiness, and a lot of sorrow. But no matter what, we have to say in here, we've not experienced what Paul has experienced on the sorrow side. We've experienced the land of plenty, a lot of happiness, and a lot of joy. If you compare our existence in this room, even if you're on the social ladder down here, on the global ladder, like what you've experienced, the fact that the, the poverty stricken in our country, the number one disease disease that, the pov- that those walking in poverty in our country face is obesity. We live in a very wealthy nation. Unless, unless uh, we move to socialism, <laughs> then we won't. Um, and yet, Paul says death is gain. Now think about your life, the family you have, the the things you enjoy. I really love life. I love my family. And sometimes thinking about the eternal state, it can almost feel like a loss. You know, like sometimes we have this idea, and this is not how it's going to be, but the eternal state is going to be memory wiped. Like we won't remember our kids, good memories, friends, families. We just won't remember that. That's That's not biblical. It's not biblical that it would be memory wiped. We'll recognize each other. We'll know each other. I don't know if hunting is a, a post-fall activity. It probably won't be there forever. But if so, Brandon, we're getting some big ones. Um, death is gain. It's not loss to the believer. If you die today, it's gain. That can be painful thinking about that, thinking about what the consequences of that. But God can take care of all of that. Death for the believer is gain. It's great gain. It's like, for the believer, we don't look at death. You know, we don't face pandemics the same way. If I die from something, okay, I look at it and think, death, oh my gosh, that's gain because I get to be with the Lord. That's gain. How amazing will it be if death is gain for my life? I love my life. I love my family. How in the world could it possibly be gain and not loss? But Paul says death is gain. We don't view death the same way the world does. We don't have that option. As amazing as life is, death is gain. I don't lose anything. I gain everything. Paul gives details then about what it means. We shouldn't be just thinking about and wondering and and loathing life because he says, if I live or die, there's good things to both. Look at verse 22 and 23. For me me to live is Christ and death is gain. Verse 22, if I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. 
Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. Paul gives us details. If I live, if I walk out of here, if my deliverance that comes through prayers and the ministry of the Spirit of Christ, if, it, if, if I walk out of this thing, what that means is fruitful labor. It means work for the kingdom. It means my hands are going to get dirty. My back is going to be spiritually wore out because I'm putting my hand to the plow and I'm keeping after this thing the rest of my life. My dying breath will be spent living to the glory of God. Fruitful labor. And he says that if I do that, that's good, but he's torn. Because to go and be with Christ, that's far better. And my desire is there. Paul in his old age is like, man, I'm just, I'm ready. There comes a point in life where you just, you know, you, you kind of, you know, you think when Paul's saying that, you're like, I get it. I've lived a lot of life. He didn't have any kids, grandkids that we know of. And so he's saying, I'm just ready to go and be with Christ. Now, this is not escapism. It's not that Paul is somehow being like um, uh, cynical or even suicidal. Paul is not fantasizing about death. But this is what certain hope looks like. It's what certain hope looks like. I know I'm going to be with the Lord, and that's going to be very good. And his desire is to be there. And sometimes I think I don't know how wonderful it is on the other side of death. And you know, Let me just say this. Uh, nobody is in heaven. Nobody in heaven with the Lord right now is sad about being there. From the baby that lived one second to the man or woman who died at 120. 110, 107. There's nobody who is in Christ who is now with him who is sad about it. Down here we grieve. We get it's it's hard. It's difficult. But there's nobody that's with the Lord that is sad about it. Paul knows that his life or death, it's in the hand of the Lord. He knows that all of life and all of death belongs to God. And he sets up this difficult decision for himself. He's torn about this. He wants this church to be healthy and to be helped, but he knows he wants to be with the Lord. Um, and he's certain that it's far better to be with the Lord. So why would he do that? Why would he set up this comparison? Why would he set up the fact that his desire is to be with the Lord, but he knows he wants to be with them as well? Fruitful labor. He wants to live and he wants to die. Why would he do that? And I think chapter 2 gives us some insight to why he does that in chapter 1. And we're going to see that here in a little bit. He sets this up. It's this word sacrifice. Why does he do this? Why does he set it up? Verse 24. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you for your progress and joy in the faith. He says, remaining in the flesh is more necessary on your account. So, sacrifice. Sacrifice. This word sacrifice. Even though Paul tells them that his desire is to depart to be with the Lord, he sets that preference essentially, or not essentially, but he sets that preference aside. He tells them what his desire is. And then he says, but I'm willing to set that aside to do fruitful labor to see God at work through you. Now, here's what I think Paul's doing here. I think Paul is modeling what he's going to call them to do in chapter 2. Look at verse 3 and 4 in chapter 2. Chapter 2, verse 3 and 4. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, 
but in humility count others more significant than yourself. Let each of you look not only to his own interests. Okay, what was Paul's interest in chapter 1? What was his chief desire? It was to depart and be with the Lord. That's what he told him. But for your sake, I'm willing to stay here. So not just looking at your own interest, but the interest of others. Paul gets to that just a few verses later, but he demonstrates it just a few verses before. He demonstrates the fact that he wants to sacrifice and do what God has called him to do for the good of others. He's doing that here in chapter 1. When you know the sacrifice of Christ personally, you become a sacrificial person. When you know that Jesus, in his carnation, told his father, if there be any other way, please, please, if there's any other way, yet not my will, but yours be done. And the fact that Jesus sacrificed himself for you, that he laid his life down, that he was the ram caught in the thicket in Genesis chapter 22. He was the true judge, the true deliverer. He was the true high priest. He was the sacrificial lamb without spot or blemish. When you know that he chose to bleed and die on a cross for you, it changes everything. The spotless lamb who takes away your sin, it changes everything. Therefore, we lay our lives down and our preferences down for others. Not in a salvific way. I don't lay my life down for you and you don't lay your life down for me in the exact same way that Jesus laid his life down for us because his laying his life down for us saved us from our sins and we can save nobody. You probably heard it said before, how many people are in heaven because of you? The big newsflash answer is nobody. It's supposed to be this evangelistic push, you know, like go out and tell people. And I get that, you know, like, okay, you, you want to be telling people about Jesus but it completely misses the point. Like, you're not the reason anyone's in heaven. Jesus is the reason anyone is in heaven. And so we lay our lives down in a similar way, not an exact way, that Jesus laid his life down for us. And Paul demonstrates that. It's like, as great as going to be what Jesus is, I'll do whatever God has for me to do, and I will sacrifice that for the good of this church. Now look at verse 25 and 26. It's interesting because Paul actually doesn't ever get to the church at Philippi. Look at verse 25. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample, ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Paul was convinced that he was going to remain with them and that they may even see him again. And because they see him again, it would cause them to glorify Christ because of it. Um, most likely, we know from church tradition, and church tradition can be wrong, but tradition tells us that Paul died in Rome, that he was beheaded in prison. And so most likely, the deliverance he had was not walking out of prison, but it was going to be with the Lord by way of beheading. Paul would most likely actually never see them again. Now, we don't have a conclusive word on that. Um, some believe that he actually got his way to Spain, that he was delivered and, and went on to Spain. But church tradition, again, tells us that most likely Paul was beheaded in prison. 
Um, and I love little things like this in the scriptures. Um, Paul did not know the future, but he did know Jesus. I don't know what tomorrow holds for me, but I know Jesus. You don't know what tomorrow holds for you, but you know Jesus. And to live is Christ, and death is gain. Um, he's enough. He really is. He really is. And in 2020, with the madness around us, joy, real joy, not suppressed joy, real joy that's demonstrated through your life is available, available for you right now. It's available for you right now. If you have Jesus, you have what you need. Not just to face tomorrow, but to face today. He is enough. So with every sermon, we want to hear from God and respond to God. We want to hear from God and respond to God. And I've been working through this, and the Holy Spirit, for some of you, have brought up one verse. And then for somebody else, the Holy Spirit has brought up another verse and convicted you in this way and you in this way. And so we hear from God, and then we respond to God. And so maybe today, for you, it's a fight for available joy. People used to call it melancholy. Maybe you're prone to melancholy, to sadness. Fight for joy today. Look to Jesus. See him as enough. See that he sacrificed his life for you. He owns all of you, even your sadness. Even your sadness he owns. And your sadness will not drive him away. And if you know that, there's some measure of joy for you in that. That you can't chase him away with your blues. He's with you. He's for you. And you can't shake him. Friends, there's joy for you in that. So maybe it's a fight for joy. And you, like Paul today, maybe in the prison of your own emotions, say, I'm going to rejoice in the Lord. Maybe it's the recognition that your life is about Christ. Because for many of us, I was talking to a guy one time, and he, he worked in a really hard setting. He said, it's just so hard for me to live for Jesus, and the environment is so terrible. And I've never had that, I've never had, uh, I've never been prone to peer pressure. I just think people are stupid, to be honest. So I, I don't, I don't, I don't try to be cool with, in, it just doesn't, like, um, that's the wrong way to say it. I don't, not that I think people are stupid, but um, even when I was in high school, the peer pressure was, for me, my Christian buddies. We're all like, you know, like, who loves Jesus more? It was that kind of pressure, not, you know, drink this thing or, or smoke this thing. Um, some people at work, though, they really struggle because when they're around Christians, they're like, yes, I, their affections for the Lord are there. But when you're at work, it's like uh, something else comes out. It's not just for men, it's for women as well, where something else comes out where it's, it's like, man, I don't like who I am at work. Or maybe for you, it's at home in the middle of the night when your kid screams out and you turn into an absolute gargoyle. Um. Maybe it's a recognition that Jesus owns my life at one in the morning when my child screams out to me, and I don't march down there with a terrible attitude. I've got to, I got to take ownership and say, God, you, Jesus, live through me at one in the morning. I don't want to have a mean attitude. God, change that. Maybe today you need to stop fe fearing death because death is gain. There are many people, this madness for 2020, it's because people really do fear death. People fear death. 
They're, they're terrified of it. Um, the secularists who don't believe in a God, they don't believe in God, you got one left to live. And if I don't live it to the full, then they fear death because that's it. Um, false religions around the world, they have wrong ideas about this as well. But maybe you fear death, but maybe today, through the power of the Holy Spirit, you leave that fear of death and you walk out of here. And it's not like we're, we embrace foolishness, but we're just not afraid of death anymore. Or you're just freed from that. And maybe you need to repent of putting yourself first and need to model the Apostle Paul here and say, but for your sake, it's better that I continue on. And you say, you know what? I've been putting myself first too long. I'm not going to drink that Kool-Aid anymore. I'm going to put that away, repent of that, and I'm going to live a sacrificial life today. What can I sacrifice for the good of others today? What can I deny in myself and my preferences today so I can prefer somebody else today? We're told that we're to have this mind, the very mind of Christ, who through the, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality to be God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a Christ cross. We're told to have that same mind among ourselves, which is ours in Christ Jesus. Maybe today you need to start doing fruitful labor. And life to you has been made up of unfruitful labor, working really hard for the wrong things. And there's a lot of people doing work for the wrong, really, really hard work, and it's all in the wrong direction. What fruitful labor needs to be done in your life today? Maybe today, maybe today you need to repent of your sins and trust in Jesus because you recognize that you don't know the one who sacrificed himself for sinners. And maybe today for the first time you recognize that you've sinned against a holy God and you wouldn't be right with that holy God. You want peace with God right now. And so the Holy Spirit is taking these verses that I just walked through, just kind of summarizing those verses, and applying them to some of you in different ways. We hear from God, and then we respond to God. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, help us to respond to you. Grant repentance in any area that we need to repent of. And may we bear fruit in keeping with that repentance. Holy Spirit, bring conviction to us this morning. I can convict no one. The Holy Spirit, come to us right now and point to us things that need to change. If there's somebody here that doesn't know you this morning, God, I pray that they would, God, I pray that they would know you today. I pray that you would grant repentance and that they would, what that looks like is that they would tell you that they're sorry, that they would repent. God, I have live my life wrong and in rebellion against you. And they would ask for mercy. They would turn their trust, put their faith that you've given them in the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us to respond. I trust God that you will. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.